0: Well, it was uh, my, my first ever sermon as a paid staff member. Uh, I was working at this small little country church on the suburbs of Knoxville in a place called Maryville, or if you were from there, it was pronounced Merville. You kind of had a slur together. Learned that one quickly. And uh, the senior pastor uh, asked me to preach, and so uh, a couple of months in advance, we were in the middle of this series that was kind of taking big chunks of the Bible and covering them, and he gave me the book of Judges. And if you're familiar with the book of Judges, it's about some raw guys, some girls, some prophets, prophetesses, who kind of are caught in this cycle with the people of Israel to kind of get them back on track. There's a lot of like war and good stuff going on. And and so for like months, I prepared for this sermon. I knew it was coming. I delivered, preached my heart out. I got to come into some of the obligatory, like, hey, not bad sermon for a student pastor type comments at that time. And uh, so the next day came and the senior pastor said, hey, I'd love to talk to you in my office about your message, so I was like, okay, great, so I, so I walked in, um, thinking I'm going to get some, some attaboys, some high fives type of deal, and he said, yeah, I heard some comments, but, but I got two, two things that, that I want to address that uh, if you ever preach here again, you need to fix, and I said, okay, uh, l- let me have it, I- I'm here to grow, I'm humble, I can take it, and he said, so, so number one, you didn't wear a suit, and uh, to properly preach the word of God, you need to be in a suit, if he could only see me now, right, type of deal, Uh, And so that was the first thing, and he's like, but you know, I didn't tell you that's what I expected, so, um, but here's the second one, And and he leans in, and he goes, I don't appreciate you using profanity in my pulpit. Now I got ghost white, like, stop talking, like I was just like, I started to panic, to freak out, and I was like, I am so sorry, did something slip? Hopefully you don't know, you know, it was, it was unintentional, I didn't mean it, Like, like and so I was like, yeah, so can you, can you just tell me what I said, help jog my memory of what slipped out, and he's kind of like, I would rather not, and I was like, was it that bad? And he starts, he's like, okay. And he, he looks around the room. It's like just the two of us in there. It was like, whatever. And then he leans. He's like, I'm not going to say, but I'll spell it for you. And I said, okay. And he goes, B. And I was like, oh boy. (laughs) And then he goes, U, T, T. And then he just like backs away, just like drops a bomb. And I was like, you're upset with me that I said the word butt on stage type of situation. And he was like, yeah, that's just, he's like, I just prefer that to not happen. Needless to say, I didn't last there super long. Um, had to find me a new spot to do ministry since. Now it's interesting because there's a lot of these things and maybe you grew up in a very traditional fundamental church. Uh, Maybe your grandparents took you to to a certain church growing up and where there was kind of sometimes these additions, these fine prints that nobody talked to you about of what it meant to be a true disciple of Jesus. You didn't know you had to wear skirts down to your ankles. You didn't know that eight hours a day on Sunday was the appropriate amount of worship for somebody uh, in the family of God. And so what has happened over the course of history even all the way back to the time right after Jesus, uh, is, is these ideas or these things that I want to call them this morning for our conversation of what we would call permissible dilemmas. So these ideas of these things that aren't necessarily against scripture or against uh, the will of God that we find ourselves, it's okay to do that, but should we? So these permissible dilemmas have kind of maybe come across um, uh, you at some point or another. And, and for Christians today, some of those permissible dilemmas are things like, well, well is, it, is it cool for a Christian to drink alcohol? We know what the Bible talks about getting drunk, but, but what about having a social drink with some friends type of situation? What about tattoos? We've heard that if you get a tattoo, you're no longer in the family of God. If that's the rule, it'll be like me and two other staff members come tomorrow morning. We're just calling it for what it is. And there's all these rules or all these things that we hear of what you can and can't do. Now, in the ancient Middle East, in the time of Jesus, kind of their permissible dilemmas, we'll talk about it, but the big one was this idea of what do you do with meat sacrificed to idols? And what was happening then, and is also what happens now, is when these permissible dilemmas come up, some people like to draw a line. And on one side, you have people say, you can't be a Christian and still blank. You can't be a Christian and, 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 and enjoy a nice cold Corona on the beach with Snoop Dogg, if you, even if he was there, invited you in. You can't do that. And some people get very legalistic about it, very fundamental. And then some people, I've noticed this, do the exact opposite. They say, we're saved by grace. Uh, everything is permissible. They take that quote out of verse, and they intentionally do stuff to stick it to the religious stiffs. It happens. No, I'm going to get a tattoo because you don't want me to, and so I'm going to get one just to show you that Jesus still loves me. And so we, we get in these kind of dichotomies when it comes to these things that, again, are, are permissible dilemmas. It's not an argument on whether or not God says it's okay or not. It's like When it's that gray area, how do we address it? Because I like to think is that, that people who don't belong to the family of God, outsiders looking in and at the church, us as Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ, they, they probably get a little confused sometimes. Well, I grew up hearing this, but now you're telling me that that it's okay, Like, it doesn't matter what I do. My actions matter too much, my actions uh, don't matter at all, and so what's the answer to the middle of how we actually seek to live out what is best, not just for ourselves, but for the community around us? So if you have your Bible, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, we are in week 12 of our study called True North, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Uh, Somebody asked me last week, how long are we going to be in this for? And I said for as long as we want. I don't know. Like we don't have a set day, probably till Christmas, most likely. Uh, we're taking it chunk by chunk because we believe in the value of Scripture, of taking the Word of God, studying and applying it to our hearts and to our minds. So if you have a Bible, bring it every single week with you. You can follow along on our app. Quick word is that if you are a note taker, highly encourage you to take notes, glean stuff from the message. The notes we provide at our communion stations also provide you the opportunity to apply the message deeper throughout the Week so that we don't just become hearers of God's words, we become doers of them. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, we've been saying that the whole entire thesis of 1 Corinthians is God by the name of Paul, he's writing to this church in like kind of what would be modern day Amsterdam, where, where their entire motto is you do you. Whatever you, you think, whatever feels right, whatever makes you happy, just go ahead and do it, put, put morality to the wind, even if you're a Christian, just go ahead. And the apostle Paul's writing to say, that's not quite it. And so we need to develop a Christ-centered worldview, so how we think about our actions, our beliefs, and our context in a way that best glorifies and lifts up the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, starting in verse 1, you follow along with me. Paul says this, he says, now, Now that's a transition word. We're kind of leaving one section, moving on to a new one, to which a lot of people are like, yeah, chapter six and seven were pretty heavy. Thankfully, we're moving on. Now, he says, about food sacrifice to idols, we know. Now, on the count of three, everybody, crowd participation, say the word no. One, two, three, no. No. It's going to be a recurring word here. We know that we all possess knowledge. But knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. That's super clear, right? (laughs) Cool. But whoever loves God is known by God. So then... About eating food sacrificed to idols, he says. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world. What he's saying is, is we know those idols are fake. They're not false. You don't need to worship them anymore. And that there is no God but one. The Holy Trinity that that we serve, that we follow, that we believe in. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, and indeed there are many gods, he's using parentheses, many lords. He's kind of poking fun that they, they think they have meaning and value, but they don't. Yet for... Us, there is but one God the Father, from whom all things came and for whom all things we live, and there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge, he says. Some people are still accustomed to idols. That when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been a sacrifice to that God. And since their conscience is weak, he says, it is defiled. But food does not bring us closer to God. Okay? Bacon, but whatever. We are no worse if we do not eat. But we are also no better if we do. So Paul's kind of addressing like a mailbag question. And what was going on in that time in that church is you had two different groups of people and they were having a discussion about what do we do with the, with the permissible dilemma stuff? God, we, we, we know about the food sacrificed to, to idols. Is it kosher for us to eat it or not? So here's what would happen. Is, is there would be a, a, a pagan temple, and if you worshipped that god, you would take the sacrifice with you. So you'd pick up your lamb or your goat or your bull, I guess you couldn't lift the bull, you'd, you'd drag it or whatever, and you would get to the temple. And then they would say, okay, this what is what and then they would take the, the animal and they'd put it into thirds. And one third they would completely burn up as the sacrifice, another third you got to take home and consume for yourself, and then the last third stayed behind to take care of the priests in the temple. Now the thing is, is back then, if they had a lot of sacrifices, the priests might not need that food. Or maybe they didn't like that particular cut that you wanted to leave behind. And so then they would turn around, and they would sell it at a discounted price from their temple market. And so since the beginning of time, Christians were after a good deal, right? Right? And and they're writing to the apostle Paul saying, hey, so about that meat that's cheaper, can we eat it or not? And Paul begins to write and he says, you know that knowledge puffs up because there's this dichotomy. Some on one side were kind of saying like, hey, You can't, because that me was sacrificed to idols, and you know, da 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 and then the other side, right? So you're going to be my weak crowd today. Sorry, you got drafted. You're the weak side. Over here, you guys are going to be the strong side, okay? So you guys can flex at him if you want, but he's going to address both parties, and he says, the weak people, sorry, weak people, you have a problem, because your problem is, is that your faith is weak. That you believe eating food from a fake God is actually drawing you away from well, like You know that God isn't real. You know that that, that, that thing, that, that idol doesn't save you. What does it matter? And that's what he says to them. And you can say that at this point now, you strong people are getting a little, yeah, what up? And you start puffing your chest out. You can sense like the condemnation. <laughs> yeah, you silly little weak people over there can't believe you still think you can't eat that. We're under a new covenant. We're under Jesus. We're under grace. <laughs> you never had a ribeye before, huh? Yeah, sucks for you. And so Paul is kind of writing this dichotomy here about this issue of me, and He's saying some are weak. And what they believe is that what you participate in qualifies you or not to participate in the kingdom. Apostle Paul says that's not it. That only Jesus gets to decide that. And Jesus said that whoever loves me, whoever confesses their sin, is welcomed into my family forevermore. But then he turns around to look at the strong and he says, but don't you know that knowledge just puffs you up? To one side he says you need to check your faith. To the other side he says you need to check your heart. But he's kind of making this point that just knowing where gets you nowhere. That just knowing where you you can or can't do something gets you nowhere in the family of God because it's about living it out. You don't want to just be puffed up. You want to be living it out. You want to be building up others in love that just knowing where it says you can or can't do something is not enough. He says you need to put it into practice. Now this word to know is the same word that means to bubble. okay. And what he says, just knowing is like filling something up with a bunch of hot air and watching it float off. These are my daughter's bubbles. She was very sad when she brought them to me. Um, But yeah, don't tell her. And so he, she says, like, this is what knowledge is. You're just taking something and filling it up with hot air. Eventually it's going to expand. You might blow it up so much that it pops. It might burst at some point, whether you like it or not. And we know this, that, that just knowing stuff gets you nowhere, right? Like how many of you, when you were like 20 years old and didn't have a kid, knew exactly how to raise a child? You asked 20-year-old Eric what it took to raise a child correctly. Man, I had a whole handbook I mean, it was great. I mean, yeah, when I go to the store, my kids will never disobey me like that in the frozen aisle. Yep, yep, I don't care how many kid cuisines you want. That's not on our budget. You get over it. I had all these plans of what it meant to really actually raise up a child. And then I had a kid. And that all changed really quickly. Right? And so what we come to realize is that just knowing something, all it does is just bubbles. Paul says, Paul says, you don't know, weak people. All you know is to know. And don't you know that all you're knowing is just bubbling you up? So there's got to be a different way. There's got to be a better way. That knowledge doesn't, might make you. it makes you smarter, but knowledge doesn't necessarily make you wiser. That knowing it isn't the same as showing it. And in the kingdom of God, as disciples of Jesus, as a church of believers, we are in the business of not just knowing our faith, but showing it. And so then Paul's going to say, so whether you are weak in your faith or whether you believe you are strong based on what you know, there's a different way and there is a better way under that doctrine that we call grace. So Paul continues, so let me show you what that ought to look like for the family of God. Picking up in verse nine this morning, first Corinthians chapter eight, verse nine, he says, So be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. You gotta fight for your right to part. No, okay. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you, when you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, he says, you actually sin against Christ. Therefore, if what you eat causes, uh, what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. Now, Paul's not saying if somebody offers me a fat, juicy ribeye at a Ruth's crisp, I'm going to turn it away because I don't know where it came from. But he's saying, knowing who my brothers and sisters are, knowing their story, knowing their past, I'm going to first consider what my actions might do in a rippling effect. And some we could put it this way, just because I could doesn't mean I should. And the question Paul is saying is no longer could I, can I, am I allowed to? This is the question we need to start asking is should I? Again, Paul's not talking about ethical dilemmas here. You guys remember uh, kind of those moral ethical dilemmas you may be uh, in, in school, psychology or whatever. It's like those questions, it's like, hey. Your family's starving to death. Would you go steal a loaf of bread to feed them? Right? And you're kind of like, I don't know. How good's the bread? Like, do we got any Kerrygold butter at home? Do I have a toaster? Whatever. Right? Those ethical dilemmas. Would you do this for the sake of this? One of the ones I thought of is, uh, was this. Is, okay, let's say a package is delivered to your house. Amazon. Okay? But it's the wrong address, you notice, and it's your neighbor two doors down whom you despise. But you pick up the box and you realize it's from one of your favorite brands. What do you do? Do you go give it to them? Do you kick it down the road? Do you open it to see if you want to take it and keep it for yourself? What do you do? Arguably the most uh, famous ethical dilemma of all time is called the trolley Problem. Maybe you remember this or see. So here's a picture of the trolley problem. And uh, what it basically says is there is a trolley on a train track that is headed to run over and kill five people. You didn't put the, the, the trolley there, you didn't put it into motion, it's already there. But you are standing by a lever, and if you pull it, it will redirect the trolley to take out one person. And somebody pointed out first service this trolley just goes in a loop, so you're doomed no matter what. And this question's based on, okay, well, well, what do you value in in the dilemmas of your life? This one, five people lose their lives, even though you could have done something for for the value of one life. But some people might say, yeah, but I didn't put this one into motion, so I couldn't live with myself if I actually pulled the lever and was responsible. And then sometimes they kind of uh, trade uh, uh, examples of it. Okay, what if these are five regular people, but this is, is a Nobel Peace Prize winner? You see what they're saying? And so I was doing some research and I found a three-year-old who actually figured out a way to solve this problem pretty good. So check it out. Uh Uh-oh, Nicholas. This train is going to crash into these five people. Should we move the train to go this way or should we let it go that way? Which way should the train go? Uh oh. That's one way to solve it, am I right? I believe what the Apostle Paul is getting to, he said, there's sometimes dilemmas that are hard and difficult, depending on who's involved, depending on your background, depending on your preferences, depending on your own conscience. But he's saying the question ought to change. The question shouldn't always be can I? It's should I? Paul says, I could eat meat. I could eat meat in the presence of somebody who used to worship that idol, but if that is going to push them further or back into that temptation to sin, I will refrain. I will lay down my right. I will lay down my privilege because it is what is best for the sake of another. As American Christians, it's very difficult for us because we get really fixated on what our right is. Well, I have the right to do that. I have the right to the ability. That is my freedom. You can't tell me what to do. And the Apostle Paul is writing to say, in the kingdom and the family of God, your rights begin to be put on a pedestal sometimes. And sometimes you worship your right, your ability, more so than you worship Jesus. Even though that right might not be inherently wrong, are you willing to lay that down so that you can continue to build others up? Now, I'll be really clear on something, though. Because what the Apostle Paul is saying is, is if you do something and it rubs them the wrong way. He's not saying if you do something and it gets under their skin, if you do something and that's just the tradition they grew up with. He's not saying if you want to do something that's your right, but it's going to bother somebody. He's saying that's their problem they got to deal with that. That's their issue. But truly consider is what you are doing. Is it causing you or others to stumble? See, when it comes to this idea of the permissible dilemma, Paul is saying we shouldn't just want knowledge. We want knowledge applied. And we don't want to necessarily put up hurdles where Jesus didn't put any to belong to the family of God. We also don't want to live like our old selves, That Jesus has given us new life in his grace, in his forgiveness, through the power of his spirit to live as new creations above everything that we have. And so whether you find yourself weak-minded or strong-minded, the question begins to change that we act based on not what we know to be right, but what is also right towards another person. So I was thinking about this, and I was like, how do we apply this to our lives today? So I came up with a flowchart. Yep, you didn't think I could do that. So I created this flowchart here to kind of maybe show how it works out in this passage, but then we can take this and apply it to our lives as the family of God today. So number one, the first question you ask: does it violate scripture? Okay, and if the answer is yes, then you don't do it, right? Should I sleep with that person who's not my spouse? Well, that clearly violates scripture. Yep, don't do it. Should I steal money from my neighbor? Violate scripture. Don't do it. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're not talking about those. We're talking about these permissible dilemmas. And so uh, does it violate scripture? Does eat beans, meat uh, sacrificed to idol. Does it violate scripture? The answer to that is no. But does it cause me to sin? Did I used to worship that God? Did I used to visit that temple? And is going back there going to draw me closer back in? He says, well, if the answer is yes, then you don't do it. If it's against your conscience, you don't do it. But the answer is no, you have a second question you need to ask or a third question, which is will it cause others to sin? And sometimes the answer to that question depends on who you're around. It depends on the context that you are in. But there's a fourth question and it's the most important one. Is are my motives pure? Am I doing that just because I can? Am I doing it because I want to live in my freedom? Or am I doing it to stick it to somebody else? Am I doing it to kind of show those religious people they don't know what they're talking about? So he begins to ask that question. Now, take out the topic of food sacrifice to idols and place in something maybe a little bit more personal for us. As a Christian, can I go to an R rated movie? Well, maybe it depends on, on the movie. But does it violate scripture? There's nothing in scripture that says you can't go to an R rated movie and have movies, so on and so forth, right? Well, does it cause me to sin? Is it going to cause me to think or act or do something against Jesus' will for my life? If the answer is yes, then you don't. The answer is no, okay, but, but does, does going to that movie, is it going to cause others? Am I going to bring others with me who maybe they might have a stumbling there? Then I don't do it. But at the end of the day, why am I doing it if I want to? If it's not going to cause me to sin and it's not going to cause somebody else, why do I want to do that in the first place? You can take out R-rated right movies, put in drinking, put in tattoos, Put in buying unlimited amounts of things from from the Amazon. Put in shopping at one of those places uh, that's been popular in the news. Put in buying a new car. I've heard people say, it's wrong, it's against God's will to buy a brand new car. Okay. The question isn't, can I? The question is, should I? And where Paul leads us is to consider is that being right at the expense of being loving is to be wrong. Just because you can, just because it's right, but it's at the expense of doing what is loving for another fellow believer. Or maybe it's not even somebody who knows and worships Jesus yet. That is to be wrong. Think about the foundation of our faith as somebody who laid down his right. He was God in heaven, humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. He did not propel his majesty, but he held it back so that he may live a perfect life. Take his final breath on the cross for the sake of you and I. That Jesus didn't come, though, to say, okay, you were kind of bad. Let me make you less bad. He came to say, you have a new way of living. But that new way of living is oftentimes backwards. It's upside down with the way the rest of the world. But the rest of the world tells you, it's your right. You go ahead and do it. Who cares what they think? Because they aren't the boss of you. And you're like, I like that. But Jesus says, Apostle Paul says, is it loving? See, the selfish way is easy. The selfish way says, well, I'll figure it out. And we can be selfish, even in taking it through a Christ centered lens sometimes. So he writes to one group Paul says, if you are weak in your mind, if you are creating hurdles, if you're drawing lines saying a Christian can't blank in those permissible dilemmas, he's like, you got to get over yourselves. Christians, you can get tattoos. Christians, they can make up their own choices about, about uh, the, the things that they drink, where, where they go, who they hang out with, all that type of stuff. EricaFCC-Online.org. Email me if you want, okay? And he says, though, at the same time, to the other, just because you can doesn't mean you should. And so here it is. This is the whole foundation of our faith. I think what the Apostle Paul is saying, he's not trying to focus on what you do. He's trying to say, who are you trying to become? Who are you trying to be like? Who are you following with everything that you are? You put it this way, it's simple. It's who is greater than do. That the Christian life, if I were to sum it up into one thing, what does it mean to be somebody living under the grace of Jesus is to say who I follow, who I listen to, who I want to become is more important than just simply what I do. Because do after do after do after do after do is a form of religion. And religion can maybe tell us about God, but it can't get us to Jesus. Jesus says, though, I came, I lived, I died. If you believe that you're a sinner, confess that you are broken, I will come, I will build you back up, give you eternal life, but that life starts now. The gospel message of Jesus compels us with the standpoint that Jesus doesn't just know best, that his way is best. Like Moses commanded people, this is what righteousness looks like. But he couldn't actually put it into the life of the believers. That's only through the power and faith in God. The law told us this is what sin is, and this is how it breaks, and this is how it goes against God's heart, but it's only Jesus who saves us from that sin. David, the king of Israel, was a pretty good, at times, model of righteousness, of following after God's own heart. But it's only Jesus who reigns supreme in our hearts. So in the same way, drawing lines, filling in the blanks, that religion can maybe give you knowledge about Jesus, but it's only Jesus and Jesus alone who can transform you to live as that new creation. So I want to close with this thought. And I think sometimes what we do in our faith is, is we kind of view Jesus in kind of three different categories, three different buckets. And one this is is we, we, have, we have a manger Jesus, little baby Jesus. I'm not quoting Ricky Bobby, but you know what I'm saying. You have baby Jesus. Okay. And that represents the son of God who was born, humbled himself to live a life of what could be. And then we have Jesus on the cross who's taking on the sin and the debt of you and I, no matter our story, no matter our past, no matter how many drinks we've had, no matter how many tattoos, no matter how many piercings, whatever it is, no matter if we are single, married, divorced, you fill in the blanks. That Jesus hangs on the cross to give us new life, to take on the punishment that we deserve. But then there's also this third bucket, and that is King Jesus who sits on the throne today. And what I think sometimes happens is we say, well, I like to worship baby Jesus. The me that could be. He, he might get there some point, but I know he's here, he's arrived, but it's kind of up to me to maybe figure some stuff out. Some of us, we really like to worship the crucified Jesus and the crucified Jesus only. See, he died on the cross for my sins. It doesn't matter what I do. I can do whatever I want. I can continue living and we cheapen grace for the sake of our own selfishness because we say, but he died on the cross. And the apostle Paul is saying, he absolutely died on the cross. He born, He died on the cross, but he sits on the throne today. He sits on the throne to be king of your heart, to be king of this world, to make a new creation. That is where he sits today. Do you worship the Jesus who sits on the throne of eternity? and we can go before him and we can humbly bow, we can kneel and we can take our past. We can take our choices. We can take everything in us, every sin that so easily entangles, knowing that he was born, knowing that he died on the cross, but that he reigns supreme. And he says, cast it at my feet, worship me because I love you. I died for you, but I've called you to a new way of life. The choice is yours because not only does he sit on a throne, he extends a hand to say, will you join me in building this kingdom? Will you join me in building up your brothers and sisters? Will you seek to love them? Yeah, some people got to figure out those traditions. Some people need to get over themselves. Some people need to cast aside, that's, that's an old way of figure. whatever it is. But he's saying, but at the end of the day, the question is, are we building one another up or are we trying to tear them down? And Jesus said, not only was I born, not only did I die, but I reign today to build each other up in love. Because my way is the way of love and my way is best. So we're gonna continue to worship today and we invite you to worship with us through what we call communion. If you are with us and you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a disciple, if you belong to a different church, we invite you to participate today. If you haven't grabbed those communion elements for uh, stations in the front and the backs of the room, you can do so. Communion is our opportunity to remember not just what Jesus did, but who he is for us. And the spirit might be saying to you today, I don't know, but maybe he's saying, hey, you might have a little bit of that weak-minded faith. You are too easily swayed by the ways or the things other people are doing. I sit on the throne today. I am king, I am secure. I live, nothing can take that from you. Don't let anybody tell you, you cannot belong to Jesus because of what's on your skin or what you drank last night, but know that I love you. Others of us, we might have the opposite side to say, you know what, I might need to consider a little bit better. I might need to think about who I'm with, where I'm around, what I'm doing in those situations. That just because I can, doesn't mean I should. But overall, Jesus invites everybody to his throne to say, I'm not just the baby who came. I'm not just the man who died on the cross. I am also Lord and Savior. So do you want to follow me in my way, knowing that my way is best, but that my way is loving? Our timer is going to come on the screen for three minutes. We invite you to partake in the elements as you see fit. The cracker represents that body of Christ broken for you. The juice represents the blood of Christ shed for you. I know there are many in our our auditoriums that are uh, still wrestling with faith. You're exploring Christianity, church, God, whether or not you believe. And we are so glad that you're here. We're so glad that you choose to do that with us. If that is you today, spend these three minutes considering, are you focused more on what you do or who you are trying to become? Let me pray as we continue to worship today. Jesus, we, uh, we humbly bow before your throne in heart and in mind. We worship you because you alone are worthy to be worshiped. You have been so good to us. You have been so kind to us. You have been so generous to us. We thank you that you give us new life freely as a gift of grace, but may we not take that lightly may we understand the cost may we understand what it took may we understand the life that you have for us Lord may we see the goal of our faith not just to know more but to put it into practice may we see the goal of our faith not just to die and go to heaven someday but to experience heaven here and now as we worship and live and walk with you I pray a blessing over all of those who call First Christian Church their home. A blessing that your spirit meets them. That we are humble to hear from you. That that we have a posture to hear from you. And that what it is that you might be showing us and telling us that we be willing to surrender that to you because we love you. Because you first loved us. It's your name that we pray. Amen.